Had he ever said that, the day he had said it would have been a white stone day, both for his mind and his heart. Only the spoiled son of Spare the Rod never said that, or anything like that. But most unfortunately, it is in the very best things of life that the true mulishness of the obstinate man most comes out. He shows worst in his home life and in the matters of religion. When our obstinate was in love, he was as sweet as honey and as soft as butter. His old friends that he used so to trample upon scarcely recognized him. They had sometimes seen men converted, but they had never seen such an immediate and such a complete conversion as this. He actually invited correction and reproof and advice and assistance, who had often struck at you with his hands and his feet when you even hinted at such a thing to him. The best upbringing, the best books, the best preaching, the best and most obedient life taken all together had not done for other men what a woman's smile and the touch of her hand had in a moment done for this one so obstinate man. He would read anything now and especially the best books. He would hear and enjoy any preacher now and especially the best and most earnest in preaching. His old likes and dislikes, prejudices and opinions, self-opinionativeness and self-assertiveness all miraculously melted off him, and he became in a day an open-minded, intelligent, good-mannered, devout-minded gentleman. He who was once such a mule to everybody was now led about like a child in a silken bridle. All old things had passed away, and all things had become new. For a time, for a time. But time passes, and there passes away with it all the humility, meekness, pliability, softness and sweetness of the obstinate man till when long enough time has elapsed you find him all the obstinate and mulish man he ever was it is not that he has ceased to love his wife and his children it is not that but there is this in all genuine and inbred obstinacy that after a time it often comes out worse besides those we love best a man will be affable accessible entertaining the best of company and the soul of it abroad and then instantly he turns the latch key in his own door, he will relapse into silence and sink back into utter boorishness and bearishness, mulishness and doggedness. He swallows his evening meal at the foot of the table in silence, and then he sits all night at the fireside with a cloud out of nothing on his brow. His sunshine, his smile, his universal urbanity is all now gone. He is discourteous to nobody but to his own wife. Nothing pleases him. He finds nothing at home to his mind. The furniture, the hours, the habits of the house are all disposed so as to please him. But he was never yet heard to say to wife or child or servant that he was pleased. He never says that a meal is to his taste or a seat set so as to shelter and repose him. The obstinate man makes his house a very prison and treadmill to himself and to all those who are condemned to suffer with him. And all the time it is not that he does not love and honor his household, but by an evil law of the obstinate heart, its worst obstinacy and mulishness comes out among those it loves best. But, my brethren, worse than all that, we have all what good Bishop Hall calls a stone of obstination in our hearts against God. With all his own depth and clearness and plain spokenness, Paul tells us that our hearts are by nature enmity against God. Were we proud and obstinate and malicious against men only, it would be bad enough, and it would be difficult enough to cure. 
but our case is dreadful beyond all description or belief when our obstinacy strikes out against God. We know as well as we know anything that in doing this and in doing that we are going every day right in the teeth both of God's law and God's grace. And yet in the sheer obstinacy and perversity of our heart we still go on in what we know quite well to be the suicide of our souls. We are told by our minister to do this and not to do that. To begin to do this at this new year and to break off from doing that. But partly through obstinacy towards him reinforced by a deeper and subtler and deadlier obstinacy against God and against all the deepest and most godly of the things of God, we neither do the one nor cease from doing the other. There is a sullenness in some men's minds, a gloom and a bitter air that rises up from the unplowed, undrained, unweeded, uncultivated bogs of their hearts that chills and blasts all the feeble beginnings of a better life. The natural and constitutional obstinacy of the obstinate heart is exasperated when it comes to deal with the things of God, for it is then reinforced with all the guilt and all the fear, all the suspicion and all the aversion of the corrupt and self-condemned heart. There is a stubbornness of obstinacy against all the men, the books and the doctrines and the precepts and the practices that are in any way connected with spiritual religion that does not come out even in the obstinate man's family life. John Bunyan's obstinate, both by his conduct as well as by the etymology of his name, not only stands in the way of his own salvation, but he does all he can to stand in the way of other men setting out to salvation also. Obstinate set out after Christian to fetch him back by force, and if it had not been that he met his match in Christian, the Pilgrim's Progress would never have been written. That can by no means be, said Christian to his pursuer, and he is first called Christian when he shows that one man can be as obstinate in good as another man can be in evil. I never now can go back to my former life. And then the two obstinate men parted company forever, Christian in holy obstinacy being determined to have eternal life at any cost, and obstinate as determined against it. The opening pages of The Pilgrim's Progress set the two men very graphically and very impressively before us. As to the cure of obstinacy, the rod in a firm, watchful, wise and loving hand will cure it. And in later life a long enough and close enough succession of humble, yielding, docile, submissive, self-chastening and thanksgiving acts will cure it. Reading and obeying the best books on the subjugation and the regulation of the heart will cure it descending with Dante to where the obstinate and the embittered and the gloomy and the sullen have made their beds in hell will cure it. And much and most agonizing prayer will, above all, cure it. O Lord, if thus so obstinate I, choose thou before my spirit die a piercing pain, a killing sin, and to my proud heart run them in. Chapter 4, page 31 Pliable He hath not root in himself a quote from our Lord. With one stroke of his pencil, our Lord gives us this flaxman-like outline of one of his well-known hearers. And then John Bunyan takes up that so expressive profile and puts flesh and blood into it till it becomes the well-known pliable of the pilgrim's progress. We call the text a parable, but our Lord's parables are all portraits, portraits and groups of portraits rather than ordinary parables. Our Lord knew this man quite well who had no root in himself. 
Our Lord had crowds of such men always running after him, and he threw off this rapid portrait from hundreds of men and women who caused discredit to fall on his name and his work and burdened his heart continually. And John Bunyan, with all his genius, could never have given us such speaking likenesses as that of pliable and temporary and talkative unless he had had scores of them in his own congregation. Our Lord's short preliminary description of pliable goes, like all his descriptions, to the very bottom of the whole matter. Our Lord in this passage is like one of those masterly artists who begin their portrait painting with the study of anatomy. All the great artists in this walk build up their best portraits from the inside of their subjects. He hath not root in himself, says our Lord, and we need no more than that to be told us to foresee how all his outside religion will end. Without self-knowledge, says one of the greatest students of the human heart that ever lived, you have no real root in yourselves. Real self-knowledge is the root of all real religious knowledge. It is a deceit and a mischief to think that the Christian doctrines can either be understood or a right accepted by any outward means. It is just in proportion as we search our own hearts and understand our own nature that we shall ever feel what a blessing the removal of sin will be. Redemption, pardon, sanctification are all otherwise mere words without meaning or power to us. God speaks to us first in our own hearts. Happily for us, our Lord has annotated his own text and has told us that an honest heart is the alone root of all true religion. Honest, that is, with itself, and with God and man about itself. As David says in his so honest psalm, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. And indeed all the preachers and writers in Scripture, and all scriptural preachers and writers outside of Scripture, are at one in this, that all true wisdom begins at home, and that it all begins at the heart. And they all teach us that he is the wisest of men who has the worst opinion of his own heart, as he is the foolishest of men who does not know his own heart to be the worst heart that ever any man was cursed with in this world. Here is wisdom, not to know the number of the beast, but to know his mark, and to read it written so indelibly in our own heart. And where this first and best of all wisdom is not, there in our Lord's words, there is no deepness of earth, no root, no fruit. And any religion that most men have is of this outside, shallow, rootless description. This was all the religion that poor Pliable ever had. This poor creature had a certain slight root of something that looked like religion for a short season, but even that slight root was all outside of himself. His root, what he had of a root, was all in Christian companionship and impassioned appeals and then in those impressive passages of scripture that Christian read to him. At your first attention to these things, you would think that no possible root could be better planted than in the Bible and in earnest preaching. But even the Bible, and much more the best preaching, is all really outside of a man till true religion once gets its piercing roots down into himself. We have perhaps all heard of men, and men of no small eminence, who were brought up to believe the teaching of the Bible and the pulpit but who, when some of their inherited and external ideas about some things connected with the Bible began to be shaken, straightway felt as if all the grounds of their faith were shaken and all the roots of their faith pulled up. But where that happened, all this was because such men's religion was all rooted outside of themselves. 
But where that happened, all that was because such men's religion was all rooted outside of themselves, in the best things outside of themselves indeed, but because, in our Lord's words, their religion was rooted in something outside of themselves and not inside, they were by and by offended and threw off their faith. There is another well-known class of men, all whose religion is rooted in their church, and in their church not as a member of the body of Christ, but as a social institution set up in this world. They believe in their church, they worship their church, they suffer and make sacrifices for their church, they are proud of the size and income of their church, her past contendings and sufferings and present dangers all endear their church to their heart. But if tribulation and persecution arise, that is to say, if anything arises to vex or thwart or disappoint them with their church, they incontinently pull up their roots and their religion with it and transplant both to any other church that for the time better pleases them, or to no church at all. Others again have all their religiosity rooted in their family life. Their religion is all made up of some domestic sentiment. They love their earthly home with that supreme satisfaction and that all-absorbing affection that truly religious men entertain for their heavenly home. And thus it is that when anything happens to disturb or break up their earthly home, their rootless religiosity goes with it. Other men's religion, again, and all their interest in it, is rooted in their shop. You can make them anything or nothing in religion, according as you do or do not do business in their shop. Companionship also accounts for the fluctuations of many men's and almost all women's religious lives. If they happen to fall in with godly lovers and friends, they are sincerely godly with them. But if their companions are indifferent or hostile to true religion, they gradually fall into the same temper and attitude. We sometimes see students destined for the Christian ministry, also with all their religion, so without root in themselves, that a session in an unsympathetic class, a skeptical book, sometimes just a sneer or a scoff, will wither all the promise of their coming service and so on through the whole of human life. He that hath not the root of the matter in himself dureth for a while, but by and by for one reason or another he is sure to be offended. So much then, not enough, nor good enough, for our Lord's swift stroke at the heart of his hearers. But let us now pass on to pliable, as he so soon and so completely discovers himself to us under John Bunyan's so skillful hand. Look well at our author's speaking portrait of a well-known man in Bedford who had no root in himself, and who, as a consequence, was pliable to any influence, good or bad, that happened to come across to him. Don't revile are the first words that come from pliable's lips, and they are not unpromising words. Pliable is hurt with obstinate's coarse abuse of the Christian life till he is downright ashamed to be seen in his company. Pliable, at least, is a gentleman compared with obstinate, and his gentlemanly feelings and his good manners make him at once take sides with Christian. Obstinate foul tongue has almost made pliable a Christian, and this finely conceived scene on the plain outside the city gate is enacted over again every day among ourselves. Where men are in dead earnest about religion, it always arouses the bad passions of bad men, and where earnest preachers and devoted workers are assailed with violence or with bad language, there is always enough love of fair play in the bystanders to compel them to take sides, for the time at least, with those who suffer for the truth. And we are sometimes too apt to count all that love of common fairness 
and that hatred of foul play as a sure sign of some sympathy with the hated truth itself. When an onlooker says, don't revile, we are too ready to set down that expression of civility as at least the first beginning of true religion. But the religion of Jesus Christ cuts far deeper into the heart of man than to the dividing asunder of justice and injustice, civility and incivility, ribaldry and good manners. And it is always found in the long run that the cross of Christ and its crucifixion of the human heart goes quite as hard with the gentlemanly mannered man and the civil and urbane man as it does with the man of bad behavior and of brutish manners. Civil men, says Thomas Goodwin, are the world's saints, and poor Pliable was one of them. My heart really inclines to go with my neighbor, said Pliable next. Yes, he said, I begin to come to a point. I really think I will go along with this good man. Yes, I will cast in my lot with him. Come, good neighbor, let us be going. The apocalyptic side of some men's imaginations is very easily worked upon. No kind of book sells better among these of our people who have no root in themselves than just picture books about heaven. Our missionaries make use of lantern slides to bring home the scenes in the Gospels to the dull minds of their village hearers and with good success. And at home, a magic lantern filled with the splendors of the New Jerusalem would carry multitudes of rootless hearts quite captive for a time. Well said, and what else? This is excellent, and what else? Christian could not tell Pliable fast enough about the glories of heaven. There we shall be with seraphim and cherubim, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on them. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands who have gone before us to that place. Elders with golden crowns and holy virgins with golden harps and all clothed with immortality as with a garment. The hearing of all this, cried Pliable, is enough to ravish one's heart. An overly faith, says old Thomas Shepherd, is easily wrought. As if the text itself was not graphic enough, Bunyan's racy, humorous, pathetic style overflows the text and enriches the very margins of his pages, as every possessor of a good edition of the Pilgrim's Progress knows. Christian and obstinate pull for pliable soul is the eloquent summary set down on the side of the sufficiently eloquent page. As the picture of a man's soul being pulled for rises before my mind, I can think of no better companion picture to that of Pliable than that of poor, hard-beset Brody of Brody, as he lets us see the pull for his soul in the honest pages of his inward diary. Under the head of Pliable in my Bunyan notebook, I find a crowd of references to Brody, and if only to illustrate our author's marginal note, I shall transcribe one or two of them. The writer of this diary desires to be cast down under the readiness and plausibleness of his nature, by which he labors to please men more than God, and whence it comes that the wicked speak good of him. The Lord pity the proneness of his heart to comply with the men who have the power. Lord, he is unsound and double in his heart, politically crafty, selfish, not savoring nor discerning the things of God. Let not self-love, wit, craft, and timorousness corrupt his mind, but endue him with fortitude, patience, steadfastness, tenderness, mortification. Shall I expose myself and my family to danger at this time? A grain of sound faith would solve all my questions. I stayed at home, partly to decline the ill will and rage of men, and to decline observation. 
or take another Sabbath day entry. I stayed at home because of the time and the observation and the Earl of Moray came to Cutley Hillock. I am neither cold nor hot. I am not rightly principled as to the time. I suspect that it is not at all conscience that makes me conform, but to wit, to avoid suffering. Lord, deliver me from this unsoundness of heart. And after this miserable fashion do heaven and earth, duty and self-interest, the covenant and the crown pull for Lord Brody's soul through 422 pages. Brody's diary is one of the most humiliating, heart-searching and heart-instructing books I ever read. Let all public men tempted and afflicted with a ready, pliable, time-serving heart have honest Brody at their elbow. Glad I am, my good companion, said Pliable, after the passage about the cherubim and the seraphim and the golden crowns and the golden harps. It ravishes my very heart to hear all this. Come on, let us mend our pace. This is delightful. This is perfect. How often have we ourselves heard these very words of challenge and reproof from the pliable frequenters of emotional meetings and from the emotional members of an emotional but rootless ministry. Come on, let us mend our pace. I am sorry to say, replied the man with the burden on his back, that I cannot go so fast as I would. Christian, says Mr. Kerbain, has more to carry than pliable has, as indeed he would still have if he were carrying nothing but himself. And he does have about him, besides, a few sobering thoughts as to the length and labor and some of the unforeseen chances of the way. And as Dean Paget says in his profound and powerful sermon on The Disasters of Shallowness, Yes, but there is something else first, something else without which that inexpensive brightness, that easy hopefulness, is apt to be a frail, resourceless growth, withering away when the sun is up and the hot winds of trial are sweeping over it. We must have our hearts to our religion. We must have the inward soil broken up freely and deeply its roots must penetrate our inner being. We must take to ourselves in silence and in sincerity its words of judgment with its words of hope, its sternness with its encouragement, its denunciations with its promises, its requirements with its offers, its absolute intolerance of sin with its inconceivable and divine long-suffering toward sinners. But preaching like this would have frightened away poor Pliable, he would not have understood it, and what he did understand of it he would have hated with all his shallow heart. Where are we now? called Pliable to his companion, as they both went on head and ears into the slough of despond. Truly, said Christian, I do not know. No work of man is perfect, not even the all but perfect pilgrim's progress. Christian was bound to fall sooner or later into a slough filled with his own despondency about himself his past guilt, his present sinfulness, and his anxious future. But Pliable had not knowledge enough of himself to make him ever despond. He was always ready and able to mend his pace. He had no burden on his back, and therefore no doubt in his heart. But Christian had enough of both for any ten men, and it was Christian's overflowing despondency and doubt at this point of the road that suddenly filled his own slough, and I suppose overflowed into a slough for Pliable also. Had Pliable only had a genuine and original sloth of his own to so sink and be bedaubed in, he would have gotten out of it at the right side of it and been a tender stepping pilgrim all his days. 
Is this the happiness you have told me all this while of? May I get out of this with my life? You may possess the brave country alone for me. And with that he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough which was next to his own house. And so he went away and saw Christian no more. The side of the slough which was next to his own house. Let us close with that. Let us go home thinking about that. And in this trial of faith and patience and in that, in this temptation to sin and in that, in this actual transgression and in that, let us always ask ourselves, which is the side of the slough that is farthest away from our own house? And let us still struggle to that side of the slough, and it will all be well with us at the last. Chapter 5, page 42. Help. I was brought low, and he helped me. Quote from David. The slough of despond is one of John Bunyan's masterpieces. In his description of the slough, Bunyan touches his highest watermark for humor and pathos and power and beauty of language. If we did not have the English Bible in our own hands, we would have to ask, as Lord Jeffrey asked Lord Macaulay, where the brazier of Bedford got his inimitable style. Bunyan confesses to us that he got all his Latin from the prescription papers of his doctors, and we know that he got all his perfect English from his English Bible. And then he got his humor and his pathos out of his own deep and tender heart. The God of all grace gave a great gift to the English-speaking world and to the Church of Christ in all lands when he created and converted John Bunyan and put it into his head and his heart to compose the Pilgrim's Progress. His heart-affecting page on the sloth has been wetted with the tears of thousands of its readers and their tears have been mingled with smiles as they read their own sin and misery and the never-to-be-forgotten time and place where their sin and misery first found them out, all told so recognizably, so pathetically, and so amusingly, almost to laughableness, in the passage upon the sloth. We see the ocean of scum and the filth pouring down into the sloth through the subterranean sewers of the city of destruction and out of the town of stupidity, which lies four degrees beyond the city of destruction, and from many other of the houses and haunts of men. We see His Majesty's sappers and miners at their wit's end how to cope with the deluges of pollution that pour into this loft that they have been ordained to drain and dry up. For ages and ages, the royal surveyors have been laying out all their skill on this loft. More cartloads than you could count of the best material for filling up a sloth have been shot into it, and yet you would never know that so much as a single laborer had emptied his barrow here. True, excellent stepping stones have been laid across the slough by skillful engineers, but they are always so slippery with the scum and slime of the slough that it is only now and then that a traveler can keep his feet upon them. Altogether, our author's picture of the slough of despond is such a picture that no one who has seen it can ever forget it. But better than reading the best description of the slough is to see certain well-known pilgrims trying to cross it. Mr. Fearing at the slough of despond was a tale often told at the tavern suppers of that country. Never pilgrim attempted the perilous journey with such a chicken heart in his bosom as this Mr. Fearing. He lay about a month on the bank of the slough and would not even attempt the steps. Some kind pilgrims, though they had enough to do to keep the steps themselves, offered him a hand, but no. 
and after they were safely over it, it made them almost weep to hear the man still roaring in his horror on the other side. Some bade him go home if he would not take the steps, but he said that he would go rather make his grave in the sloth than go back one hair's breadth. Till one shiny morning, no one knew how, and he never knew himself, the steps were so high and dry, and the scum and slime were so low, that this hare-hearted man made a venture, and so got over. But then, as an unkind friend of his said, this pitiful pilgrim had a sloth of despond in his own mind, which he carried always and everywhere about with him, and made him the proverb of despondency that he was and is. Only that sunshiny morning he got over both the sloth inside of him and outside of him, and was heard by help and his family singing this song on the hither side of the sloth. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. Our pilgrim did not have such a good crossing as Mr. Fearing, whether it was that the discharge from the city was deeper or fouler, or that the day was darker or what, we are not told, but both Christian and Pliable were in a moment out of sight in the sloth. They both wallowed, says their plain-spoken historian, in the sloth, only the one of the two who had the burden on his back at every wallow went deeper into the mire. When his neighbor, who had no such burden, instead of coming to his assistance, got out of the sloth at the same side as he entered it, and made with all his might for his own house. But the man called Christian made what way he could, and still tumbled on to the side of the sloth that was farthest from his own house, till a man called Help gave him his hand, and set him upon sound ground. Christiana, again, and Mercy and the boys found the sloth in a far worse condition than it had ever been found before. And the reason was not that the country that drained into the sloth was worse, but that those who had the mending of the sloth and the keeping in repair of the steps had so bungled their work that they had marred the way instead of mending it. At the same time, by the tact and good sense of Mercy, the whole party got over Mercy remarking to the mother of the boys that if she had as good ground to hope for a loving reception at the gate as Christiana had, no sloth of despond would discourage her, she said. To which the older woman made the characteristic reply, You know your sore, and I know mine, and we shall both have enough evil to face before we come to our journey's end. Now I do not for a moment suppose that there is anyone here who can need to be told what the sloth of despond in reality is. Indeed, its very name sufficiently declares it. But if anyone should still be at a loss to understand this terrible experience of all the pilgrims, the explanation offered by the good man who gave Christian his hand may here be repeated. This miry sloth, he said, is such a place as cannot be mended. This sloth is the descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction of sin doth continually run, and therefore it is called by the name of despond. For still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and settle in this place. And this is the reason of the badness of the ground. That is the parable with its interpretation. But there is a passage in Grace Abounding which is no parable, and which may even better than this so pictorial sloth describe some men's condition here. My original and inward pollution, says Bunyan himself in his autobiography, that that was my plague and my affliction. 
That, I say, at a dreadful rate, was always putting itself forth within me. That I had the guilt of to amazement. By reason of that, I was more loathsome in my eyes than a toad, and I thought I was so in God's eyes also. Sin and corruption would bubble up out of my heart as naturally as water bubbles up out of a fountain. I thought now that everyone had a better heart than I had. I could have changed heart with anybody. I thought none but the devil himself could equalize me for inward wickedness and pollution of mind. I fell, therefore, at the sight of my own vileness, deeply into despair, for I concluded that this condition in which I was in could not stand with a life of grace. Sure, thought I, I am forsaken of God. Sure, I am given up to the devil and to a reprobate mind. Let no man, then, count me a fable-maker, nor make my name and credit a partaker of their derision. What is here in view of mine own knowledge, I dare say, is true. Sometimes, as with Christian at the slough, a man's way in life is all slashed up into sudden ditches and pitfalls out of the sins of his youth. His sins, by God's grace, find him out, and under their arrest and overthrow, he begins to seek his way to a better life and a better world, and then both the burden and the slough have their explanation and fulfillment in his own life every day. But it is even more dreadful than a slough in a man's way to have a slough in his mind as both Bunyan himself and Mr. Fearing, his exquisite creation, had. After the awful enough sloth, filled with the guilt and fear of actual sin, had been bridged and crossed and left behind, a still worse sloth of inward corruption and pollution rose up in John Bunyan's soul and threatened to engulf him altogether. So terrible to Bunyan was this experience that he has not thought it possible to make a parable of it, and so put it into the pilgrim, he has kept it rather for the plain, direct, unpictured, personal testimony of the grace abounding. I do not know another passage anywhere to compare with the 84th paragraph of grace abounding for hope and encouragement to a great inward sinner under a great inward sanctification. I commend that powerful passage to the appropriation of any man here who may have stuck fast in the slough of despond today and who could not on that account come to the Lord's table. Let him still struggle out at the side of the slough farthest from his own house, and tonight who can tell, help may come and give that man his hand. When the slough of this bond is drained and its bottom laid bare, what a find of all kinds of precious treasures shall be laid bare. Will you be able to claim to any of it when the long-lost treasure trove is distributed by command of the king to its rightful owners? What are you doing there? The man whose name was Help demanded of Christian as he still wallowed and plunged to the hither side of the slough. And why did you not look for the steps? And so saying, he set Christian's feet upon solid ground again and showed him the nearest way to the gate. Help is one of the king's officers who are planted all along the way to the celestial city in order to assist and counsel all pilgrims. Evangelist was one of those officers. This Help is another. Goodwill will be another, unless, indeed, he is more than a mere officer. Interpreter will be another, and Greatheart, and so on. All these are preachers and pastors and evangelists who correspond to all those names and all their offices. Only some unhappy preachers are better at pushing poor pilgrims into the sloth and pushing them down to the bottom of it than they are at helping a sinking pilgrim out. 
while some other more happy preachers and pastors have their manses built at the hither side of the slough and do nothing else all their days but help pilgrims out of their slough and direct them to the gate. And then there are multitudes of so-called ministers who eat the king's bread, who can neither push a proud sinner into the slough nor help a prostrate sinner out of it, no, nor point him the way when he has himself wallowed out. And then there are men called ministers too who also eat the king's bread whose voice you never hear in connection with such matters unless it be to revile both the pilgrims and their helpers and all who run with fear and trembling up the heavenly road. But our pilgrim was happy enough to meet with a minister to whom he could look back all his remaining pilgrimage and say He brought me up also out of an horrible pit out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings and he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise to our God. Now, as might have been expected, there is a great deal said about all kinds of help in the Bible. After the help of God, of which the Bible, and especially the more experimental psalms, are full, this fine name is then applied to many scriptural persons, and on many scriptural occasions. The first woman whom God Almighty made bore from her maker to her husband this noble name. Her father, so to speak, gave her away under this noble name. And of all the sweet and noble names that a woman bears, there is none so rich, so sweet, so lasting, and so fruitful as just her first divine name of a helpmeet. And how favored of God is that man to be accounted whose life still continues to draw meet help out of his wife's fullness of help till all her and his days together he is able to say, I have of God a helpmeet indeed. For in how many sloths do many men lie till this daughter of help gives them her hand, and out of how many more sloths are they all their days by her delivered and kept. Sweet, maidenly, and most sensible mercy was a great help to widow Christiana at the sloth, and to her and her sons all the way up to the river, a very present help in many a need to her future mother-in-law and her pilgrim sons. Let every young man seek his future wife of God and let him seek her of her divine father under that fine, homely, divine name. For God, who knoweth what we have need of before we ask him, likes nothing better than to make a help meet for those who so ask him and still to bring the woman to the man under that so spouse-like name. What next I bring shall please thee, be assured, thy likeness, thy fit help, thy other self, thy wish exactly to thy heart's desire. And then when the apostle is making an enumeration of the various offices and agencies in the New Testament church of his day, after apostles and teachers and gifts of healing, he says, helps, assistants, that is, succorers, especially of the sick and the aged and the poor. And we do not read that either election or ordination was needed to make any given member of the apostolic church a helper. But we do read of helpers being found by the apostle among all classes and conditions of that rich and living church. Both sexes, all ages, and all descriptions of church members bore this fine apostolic name. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ. And both Paul and John and all the apostles were forward to confess in their epistles how much they owed of their apostolic success, as well as of their personal comfort and joy, to the helpers 
both men and women, their Lord had blessed them with. Now the most part of us here tonight have been at the Lord's table today. We kept our feet firm on the steps as we skirted or crossed the sloth that self-examination always fills and defiles for us before every new communion. And before our Lord let us rise from his table this morning, he again said to us, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then have given you my hand and have helped you, ye ought also to help one another. Who then any more will withhold such help as it is in his power to give to a sinking brother? And you do not need to go far afield seeking the sloth of desponding, despairing, drowning men. This whole world is full of such sloths. There is scarce sound ground enough in this world on which to build a sloth watcher's tower. And after it is built, the very tower itself is soon stained and blinded with the scudding slime. Where are your eyes and full of what? Do you not see sloths full of thinking men at your very door, I and inside your best built and best kept house? Your very next neighbor, nay, your own flesh and blood, if they have nothing else of great hearts most troublesome pilgrim about them, have at least this, that they carry about a sloth within them in their own mind and in their own heart. Have you only henceforth a heart and a hand to help, and see if hundreds of sinking hearts do not cry out your name, and hundreds of slimy hands grasp at your stretched out arm? Sloths of all kinds of vice, open and secret, sloths of poverty, sloths of youthful ignorance, temptation and transgression, sloths of inward gloom, family disquiet and dispute, lonely grief, all manner of sloths, deep and miry, where no man would suspect them. And how good, how like Christ himself, and how well-pleasing to him to lay down steps for such sliding feet, and to lift out another and another human soul upon solid and sound ground. Know ye what I have done to you? For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. If you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's ed M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.